following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. All right, now we have got an awesome passage of Scripture to look at this morning. Um, those of you that have read ahead in the book of Genesis, uh, you'll be loving this. This is just going to be... So I've approached this passage with great apprehension this morning, I can tell you. Uh, we're in this series in the book of Genesis and looking at these early chapters of Genesis and the, 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 the stories and these early family histories of some of the earliest individuals and families and nations that lived on the earth and God's dealings with these various people. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been in the story of Noah's Ark, which is one of the more familiar stories in the Bible, and we've been looking at, at uh, that story, uh, the reality of that story, and, and if you were here, you remember we've talked about that story as real history, uh, and how could this have happened, and, we, and we've tried to, to grapple with that as something that actually did happen, but it's history uh, that is told for a purpose, and that is to reveal God in the midst of that, not just a flood, not just an ark, but that story, that, that event reveals to us the judgment of God, and the seriousness with what, which God takes our sin, and also the mercy of God, that God chose to preserve this family, this man Noah and his family, and we see, in a sense, the gospel revealed through the, the judgment of God, but also the mercy of God, the great saving act of God that ultimately points us to Jesus. So we've worked our way through all of that, and then we come to this passage, which is in, uh, at the end of chapter 9 in the book of Genesis. It's the last half of chapter 9, really, and it's, uh, we're still in the story of Noah, so this is also a story about Noah. In fact, it's the last story that we have in the Bible about Noah before we move on to other things. We're still on Noah. This is a very different story about Noah, very different to the story of Noah's Ark, and I've taken it upon myself to read it for you this morning, all right? I, I thought I wouldn't embarrass anyone else. I just embarrassed myself, okay? So you can thank me later for that. Uh, so Genesis chapter 9, if you've got your Bible or you've got it on your device there, and we are starting in verse 18. Here we go. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. Well, what a doozy of a story that is, hey? That's a good one. Um, did anybody hear the story in Sunday school? Anybody ever learn this one? I mean, we all heard the story of Noah's Ark. You know, I remember that one. I remember coloring in the pictures of all the animals 
and the ark and singing all the songs about the animals. But my Sunday school teachers never turned the page. They ne- I don't ever remember hearing what came next in the story about Noah getting drunk and naked inside his tent. That just didn't make it into the Sunday school curriculum uh, that I was a part of. But uh, we've arranged a special lesson for your children this morning, you'll be pleased to know. No, <laughs> not really. Oh, boy. So this is a very strange story. And uh, I mean, I imagine that probably Noah himself was pretty gutted that this made it into the Bible, you know. Of all the stories that you could tell about Noah, I mean, the guy lived for 950 years. You would think that there was something else that he'd done. That, that would be more interesting to talk about than this story, you know? I mean, we had done so well through the whole Noah's Ark story. It's really come off looking pretty good. And then you get this story, you know? Was there nothing else in all of his 950 years that could possibly be said about him? Instead, we get this strange and awkward and embarrassing and confusing story about Noah and his sons. What are we to make of this? Well, one of the, one of the things that gets done to this passage sometimes is that it gets turned into a lesson about alcohol and how we should not get drunk. And that's kind of the lesson that people go to town on with this story because we want to find something in it that we can talk about. And so it sort of becomes this lesson about don't get drunk. And because if you get drunk, you might get naked. And then who knows what's going to happen after that, you know, just learn from the lesson of Noah. So the story you can kind of beat people over the head with to talk about the dangers of excessive alcohol consumption. Uh, I'm not sure that's really the point of the story. Uh, There's other scriptures that talk about the problems of too much alcohol. That's certainly there in the Bible if you want to go to that. I'm not sure that's the point of this story. Uh, And I think the tendency to do that with this passage, it kind of reflects this tendency of the way that we deal with the Bible. I think in Western culture, often what we do is we go to the Bible to get a little moral nugget out of it. And we go to a story like this, and we want to try and find a little principle. We want to find a maxim. We want to find an ethical example, just something we can latch onto and say, uh, we should not do that, or we should do this, or we should, that's a bad example, or that's a good example. And, and we then take that little moral nugget out of the text, and we try to apply it to our lives. And the problem is, when you do that, you really divorce that, that little moral nugget from the rest of the story. And you, and, you, and you extract it out of the context that it comes out of. And you lose sight of what the story itself is, is trying to say and, and do. Uh, you lose the connection of that story to what has gone before it in the Bible, which is so important. And the connection of what that story is doing, following on from that. And how it's setting the scene for what follows, which is also so important. And how that story sits in the context of the bigger narrative of Scripture. All of that gets lost when we just go to this and look at it as an example of what not to do, don't get drunk. It's a very hollow way of reading the Bible. It really reduces the Bible to something far less than what it is. Uh, What we need to do is put this story into the context of the story that Genesis is telling, because there is a story that is going on, and you've been hearing this story that's been rolling through these early chapters. How does it connect to what's gone before? How does it connect to what's coming after it? How does this story sit in the flow of the whole grand narrative of Scripture? Those are the questions to ask. And when you start asking them, you actually realize there is a depth to this. There is a richness 
to the story. There's significance to it. There's real relevance to it. It's just not what we thought it was. It's something far better and far more important. So that's what I want to try and tap into this morning, okay? By trying to place this story into the context of the bigger story of Scripture, which is generally what we always try and do uh, when we're reading any part of the Bible. But it's particularly important when you come to these slightly confusing and awkward and weird parts of the Bible. Okay, so one of the things that we've been noticing as we've journeyed through these early chapters of Genesis is the way that later stories are building on earlier stories. Are you noticing this? That as the author tells more and more of the the unfolding of history, he's drawing more and more on what has come before and the earlier stories that he's been telling. So a good example of that was last week where we looked at the, the second half of the flood story and as the floodwaters recede and Noah and his family disembark, the author, in telling that story, is drawing on all of this language right back from Genesis 1 in the story of creation, the creation of the heavens and the earth. And so it means that the story of coming out of the flood is like the story of a new creation. It's the story of a new world. It's the story of a new beginning. It's the story of the earth and humanity starting again in this fresh, new way because he's telling it like the creation story. And we saw some references and and some parallels there. Now, that's exactly the same thing, very similar thing that's happening here in this story about Noah and his tent. As the author tells this story, he is drawing back on another story, another earlier part of the book of Genesis, particularly the story of Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2 and 3. If you look in Genesis 2 and 3, in the story of Adam and Eve being created, walking with God, and then falling into sin, that story becomes foundational for this story about Noah and his tent and his sons. You, You might not think on the surface of it that there's any connection between those two, but if you line them up next to each other, in fact, if you read them, Uh, one after the other, you will notice all kinds of parallels. And the author is is kind of retelling this earlier story in a fresh new way. And that gives us a big clue as to how we should understand and how we should interpret this strange story about Noah and his sons. So I want to just detail a little bit of this for you and just note some of these, these parallels and these connections, because I hope, as I do this, that a picture will emerge a picture will become clear, and we'll start to get a sense of how to interpret the story. So, first of all, look at the way Noah is introduced in, in this passage. In verse 20 of chapter 9, Noah, a man of the soil. Now, that seems insignificant, but the word soil is the word Adama. It's exactly the same word that's used back in chapter 2, when the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, the Adama. In fact, Adamah is where we get the word Adam. That's where his name comes from. So Adam was of the ground. He was a man formed from the ground. In a sense, both Adam and Noah are men of the ground. Uh, Adam in the sense that he was literally formed from the dust of the ground. Noah in the sense that he is a man of the ground and that he is tilling and nurturing and cultivating the ground like like a farmer. Uh, There's a strong connection between the two. Now, Adam was the first human being. He was like the head of the human race. He was the first. He was the representative of this this human race to come from him. Noah, in a similar way, is the head of a new human race, this post-flood humanity, this new humanity that's coming from him and his family. He's kind of the representative of that. He's like the new Adam. So there's this, this parallel, this connection that's set up there between Adam over here, man formed from ground, Noah, a man 
of the soil, of the ground. And then this reference to planting a vineyard. Uh, In the same verse, I think verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. Uh, Or literally, he was the first to plant a vineyard. So Noah was the first person to plant a vineyard and ferment some grapes and produce wine. This is the first time in the Bible anyone produces a bottle of wine. This is where it all began. And he even named it after himself, Pinot Noah. (laughs) Do you like that? I came up with that myself. (laughs) Thank you very much. I'll be here all day. All right. So Noah produces wine. And he has this vineyard. And there's an interesting parallel, I think, back to Genesis 2, where we read that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Uh, Same kind of language that's used. God plants a garden, and he places Adam in the garden to tend and steward and cultivate this garden as God's covenant partner. And now Noah plants a vineyard. And you have this sense, it's, it's a bit like the Garden of Eden is being recreated here. There's this sort of idyllic setting. There's this beautiful creation. There's this natural environment that's, that's here. And Noah is in the garden once again as God's covenant partner to till and tend and steward the garden. There's this sort of sense of, this is like the, the story is beginning again. This is like the Garden of Eden is happening again. And there's this sense of hope that maybe things are going to be different. Maybe things will be as they were supposed to be back in the beginning. And then there's this reference to Noah's nakedness. Back in uh, Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve, we're told that they were naked and unashamed. They lived in a world of innocence. It was a world of purity where they could be completely open and vulnerable and transparent with each other without any fear, without any shame, without any guilt at all. And now here's Noah. And he's uncovered in his tent. And, and, and the nakedness itself, is, is there's not any immorality around that. That's not something that's, that's immoral. He's, he's in his tent. He's uncovered. And there's, there's that sense, I think, in the text that maybe Noah has this hope that once again he's living in an innocent world where he can be naked and unashamed, where there can be vulnerability, where there can be the absence of guilt and fear and shame. Perhaps he's hoping that this kind of world can exist again. But it's a false hope, isn't it? It's not the way the story turns out. Because then into the tent comes Noah's youngest son, Ham. And in the story, Ham really connects to the role of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Back in the garden, the serpent slithers into the garden to cause chaos, to cause disruption, to cause bring sin and evil into the story, and into the tent of Noah slithers Ham to bring chaos, to bring disruption, to bring disorder into the story. And Ham sees his father naked, but instead of just covering him up, which would have been the dignified thing to do, he goes outside and he tells his brothers. And I think the way the text reads, he tells them not, not in, a, in a caring, dignified way, but in a kind of mocking, belittling kind of way and uh, in a way that's disrespecting and dishonoring of his father. And so Ham really is the one who is bringing this kind of disruption into the story, and he's responsible for the sin that is introduced into the story. He connects back to the role that the serpent played back in the Garden of Eden. And then you have the reference to clothing or being covered up. 
uh, when Adam and Eve sinned back in the garden, what's the first thing they did when they sinned? They sewed fig leaves together. They tried to cover themselves up. And they naively hoped, perhaps, that by covering themselves up physically, they could cover over the sin that they'd committed. And now you have Noah's other two sons, Shem and Japheth. And they hear about what Ham has done. But instead of joining in the mockery and joining in the belittling of their father, they choose a different path. They go into the tent and they try to cover him up. And there's this kind of humorous scene that unfolds where they take a blanket and they've both kind of got one corner of the blanket and they're facing the door so they don't look at naked dad over here and they're walking backwards and eventually the blanket is over Noah and they place it down. But what they're trying to do is to cover him up and give him back his dignity but also maybe hoping that this will cover over what Ham has done. Just like Adam and Eve hoped their clothing would sort of somehow cover the guilt, cover the shame, Ham and Japheth are thinking... Maybe we can cover them up and this whole thing will go away. But it wasn't the case because Noah awakes. And again, in both, in both stories, there's the sense of awakening, the sense of the eyes being opened. In, in, in Genesis 3, it's Adam and Eve's sin, and their eyes were opened to what they had done. In Genesis 9, it's Noah. He wakes up and he realizes or he finds out probably from the other brothers what Ham has done. So there's this sort of coming to new knowledge, this awakening Uh, and realizing what has happened. And then there's the curse. And this is probably the strongest connection between the two stories. Back in Genesis 3, it's God who pronounces the curse on Adam and Eve, curses the the woman and then the serpent and then the earth. Uh, In Genesis 9, it's Noah who pronounces the curse. And he pronounces the curse, interestingly, on not on Ham himself, but on Canaan. Ham's son. That's interesting, isn't it? Why does he do that? Why does he skip a generation? I think part of the reason is that Noah realizes one of the greatest forms of suffering that can come to us is the suffering of our children. Is that right? I think think the curse does fall upon Ham. It's just that Ham has to watch his children suffer. That's one of the greatest pains that we will go through in life, is to see the suffering of our children. And so the curse is not just on Ham or even just on Canaan, but upon the subsequent generations that are going to come from Canaan. Because if you know the story through the Old Testament, you know that the descendants of Canaan become the Canaanites. And the Canaanites become the group that opposes God's people right through the Old Testament. They are the enemies of God's people. They fight against them. And through the Old Testament, gradually the Canaanites are conquered. They are subdued and they are defeated. And so this curse is eventually fulfilled and the Canaanites becoming a slave people. They're conquered and they're defeated. It's just that it doesn't all happen specifically to Canaan. It happens to him and his descendants and their descendants and on it goes through the biblical story as this curse continues to be rolled out through the Canaanites. So as you look at all these parallels, I think it's unmistakable, isn't it, that there is a connection between these two stories. If, if it was just a couple of little echoes here and there, you might not think so, but there's so many points at which the story of, of Noah and his sons echo back to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, point after point after point, that clearly the author is drawing on this earlier material in telling us the story. And that helps us, it should help us, to, to understand the deeper themes that are going on in this story. This is a story about the post-flood world, this new beginning that's happened after the flood. And Noah's the head of a new humanity, 
and he's placed in this, in this garden-like setting, and there's all of these hopes at the beginning of the story, all of these hopes that maybe the world's different now, that maybe the problem of sin and evil has finally been dealt with, and maybe we can be as it was supposed to be back in the beginning. Maybe we can return to a world of innocence and purity and goodness and love. But then as the story progresses, all of those hopes come crashing down with the stupidity of Ham, all of those dreams of restoration and renewal, it all just comes crashing down and we realize the world is just as it was before. Nothing's changed. Families are still just as dysfunctional. People are just as sinful. Humanity is just as broken. The earth is just as messed up. It's like nothing has changed. And the story really ends with this profound note of disappointment. After everything that's happened, after the devastation of the flood, after this huge judgment and purging of evil, the lengths that God went to. And yet here we are, it's like we're back in the same place again. Still evil is rampant, still sin is here, still there's brokenness and stupidity and folly and immorality. It's like we're just still shot through with sin and you're left at the end of the story. The sense should be this almost sense of despair. How can it be that we're still trapped in this kind of broken world? And what's it going to take to get us out of that? What's it going to take for this problem of sin and evil to be dealt with? And that should propel you forward in the biblical story all the way to Jesus. That's where the story goes. And this should launch you to there. But before we get there, we will get there. But let me just look at one other detail in the text that starts us on that journey. There's one really important difference between the story of Noah and his sons and the story of Adam and Eve. And that is how the stories finish. Notice that in the story of Noah, it ends, or very close to the ending, there's a blessing. There's a blessing pronounced upon Shem. See, in the story of Adam and Eve, as Genesis 3 closes at least, it's just the curse. But here, straight after the curse, there's a blessing. And Noah says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. Literally, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. He pronounces this great blessing upon Shem and Japheth, but primarily upon Shem, the eldest son of Noah. Why Shem? Why why does this blessing rest upon Shem? Well, if you follow the line of Shem, the son of Noah, and you follow that all the way through, as I'm sure you'd love to do this afternoon, sit down for hours and follow the genealogy all the way through, you find that as you trace the line of Shem, and there's, and there's parts of Genesis that, that will take you through it, you get all the way to a man named Abraham. And we'll get to him in a few weeks' time. So Abraham, directly descendant from Shem. And then, of course, you go from Abraham, you follow him through, he's the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then from the tribe of Judah, eventually you get all the way to Jesus. And you get over to the Gospels and the Gospel of Luke. Luke actually does this. He maps out the genealogy of Jesus. He takes it right back to Adam. He will give you the genealogy of Jesus going back thousands of years all the way to Adam. And you can look there clear as day, trace it back, and there in the genealogy is Shem. Jesus is a descendant of Shem. He's a son of Shem. Now, what does that mean? It means that this blessing that was given to Shem by his father Noah is carried forward and forward and forward and forward all the way to Jesus. 
Just as the curse that fell upon Canaan is carried forward to all of his descendants, the curse that fe- the, the blessing that fell upon Shem is carried forward through the history of Israel and eventually lands upon Jesus, and Jesus fulfills it and brings it to its conclusion. Because Jesus releases the blessing to the whole world. Jesus enables that blessing to come to, to all of us. Because he does what the the flood judgment could never do. Jesus goes to the heart of the problem of sin and wickedness and evil in the world, and he deals with it at its source, which is the human heart. That's why the flood could never do it. That's why God's intention was never to completely eradicate sin at that point. Because the problem of sin resides in the human heart. It's not something that physically covering the earth with water was ever going to be able to do. That's, That's a judgment But Jesus goes to the heart of the problem, the human heart, the human soul, and he deals with the problem of sin and evil there. And he does it by defeating the evil one, defeating the serpent in the garden. Jesus defeats the serpent, robs him of his power, robs him of his authority and his territory and his control that he had upon the world because of falling into that sin, defeats the power of death in the world, defeats the power of all evil, all darkness and brokenness and wickedness because he takes all that upon himself And he establishes the kingdom of God on earth. A kingdom that's here now in part and one day will be here fully and completely in all of its glory and in all of its splendor. That's ultimately where this story should point us. Jesus fulfills the blessing of Shem and he fulfills the hope of this story. So this story about Noah and his sons, it leaves us with that sense of disappointment that we still live in this world of brokenness. But that disappointment, ultimately leads us to the hope and the blessing that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's where the story is meant to leave us. Can you see how there's a bit more going on here than just don't get drunk? This is a big story that's being told here, and there's a big connection between Noah and his sons and the blessing and the redemption that came through Jesus. And for us, we live on the other side of all that now, don't we? We live on the other side of Jesus' death and and, and life and resurrection Thousands of years after that. But we still experience the same disappointment that this story taps into. And I think that's why the story is important. Not because we're going to be in exactly the same circumstances, probably, hopefully. But because that deep current of disappointment, it taps into something deep in the human heart, doesn't it? You think about how Noah felt at the end of that whole episode. Embarrassed, disappointed, frustrated, and probably quite despairing over the way that things were going. Those kinds of things are common to all of us. Those kinds of things are common to humanity. That sense of disappointment that life is not the way we thought it was going to be. And the world that we thought might be taking shape is not the world that we actually find ourselves in. That's something we can all relate to, isn't it? Even if we can't relate to the specifics of the story. Those deeper themes, they pull at our hearts. I mean, how many of us have that experience of having hopes and dreams for our lives? Or for the loved ones in our lives. And then as time passes, you feel like those dreams are just not materializing. They're not coming about at all. And the things that we wished for ourselves or we wished for others, they're just not not happening. Or they're not happening like we thought they were going to happen. And we just have that crushing sense of disappointment. Feeling like life is just not what we thought it was going to be. All these broken dreams, all these shattered hopes and expectations and great optimisms that we had for life, it all just seems like it's kind of fallen by the wayside. And it leaves us feeling disappointed with ourselves, like Noah probably felt, yeah, because of his, his own drunkenness. I mean, he, he had some of the blame in the story. And we can feel that 
disappointment in our lives. We're disappointed that we are not becoming the people we hoped we would become by now. Uh, we get disappointed with others. You think of Noah's disappointment he must have had with his youngest son at this point. And we get disappointed. We get disappointed with the people close to us, that they let us down. And they're not who we thought they might have been. And they betray us. And they fall a lot short of our expectations. And I think we get disappointed with God, the truth be told. I wonder if Noah ended up in that place at the end of the story. Disappointed that after everything that had happened and all the flood that God had taken him through, that things just still seemed to be the same as they were before. Still dysfunction and depravity. I wonder if there was that sense of disappointment with God. And you and I can feel that, can't we? We thought God was leading you down a particular path and then it just, that, that's not how life goes. Or you thought you had this promise from God and then that doesn't seem to be taking place in the reality of your life. Or you thought that God was going to answer this particular prayer in this particular way and then that doesn't work out. And we can find ourselves really frustrated with God, really disappointed with God. And we might not like to talk about it because it doesn't sound like a very Christian thing to say, but I think a lot of us in our hearts harbor this deep disappointment with God because of life and the world and even the way we are. I think Noah felt all of that. And I think that's really normal and natural because we still live in a really broken, fallen world. But all I would say to you, if you're holding on to that disappointment, and what I think the story says to us is, don't forget where that story ultimately goes. Just don't forget where that story leads. If you just stay in Genesis 9, it's pretty hopeless. But don't forget where that story ultimately goes, because it ultimately leads us to Jesus. And Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it in abundance. Is that true? Is that, that's a promise. you know. And it doesn't mean that he's going to take away all of your disappointment. And it doesn't mean that he's going to intervene and fix all of your problems tomorrow. I hope he does. But there's no guarantee from Scripture that tomorrow is going to be any better than yesterday. It could be worse. But Jesus still says, I will give you the abundance of life even in the midst of your brokenness. I'll give you fullness even in the midst of your emptiness. I'll show you something new even in the midst of the old world that you are still living in. I will breathe hope into your disappointment and I will be with you because Jesus has given you back the one thing that was stolen from you in the garden and that's your connection to God. It's the one thing the serpent stole from you and Jesus has given it back. He says, no matter what comes your way, I'm going to walk with you and I will strengthen you every step of the way. I'm going to pour my power into your life. I'm going to pour my spirit into your life. I'm going to pour my peace into your life and I will carry you through and I will give you a hope and a future, Jesus would say to you. And it may not be the kind of future that you thought you were going to have. And it may not be the kind of future that you even wished for. It may not be the fulfillment of all your personal hopes and dreams, but it's still going to be a hope and a future because it's still going to be the abundant life that Jesus promises every one of us. It will still be life with Christ where he will take you and shape you and mold you and fill you and lead you and guide you and bless you. He will. Maybe not in the ways you expected. Maybe not in the ways you thought it was all going to work out but he will. And one day, he's going to lead you home. One day when he returns again, all the disappointments of this life, they'll just melt away on that day. And all the, the, the unmet expectations and the broken dreams, they'll all just melt away. And there will only be joy and peace and rest. Yeah? And all the difficulties of the present that will all just fade on that day. And there will just be the kingdom of God, kingdom of peace and joy 
and righteousness. Can't wait for that day. That's the hope. That's real hope. And that's where our disappointment can lead us. It is totally normal and natural to feel disappointed by life because we and this world are shot through with sin. But I just plead with you from Scripture, let that disappointment lead you to Jesus. Let it lead you to the source of true hope. That's where the story goes, strange though it is, bizarre though it is. That's why it's in the Bible, ultimately, to lead you from disappointment to the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. So I just plead with you to see a little bit more in this story than a lesson about getting drunk. Because I think that's a very, very shallow way of reading what is, in fact, a very substantial and rich story, if we let it speak to us. I pray you'd see the depth in that story, see the brokenness. It's confusing, it's awkward, it's embarrassing, but hey, that's life, isn't it? And if you would, if you would let the Lord lead you from that place to the hope that's found in Jesus, this passage and the Spirit of God can breathe new hope, new possibilities, and a new future into your life. Hope for the present and great hope for what is yet to come. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to pray this morning for anyone in the room here who is feeling disappointment and who is just looking back on what they hoped that life would be and just seeing that it's not really that way at all and just carrying that weight of being discouraged, frustrated by life, disappointed at themselves, maybe disappointed in you, God, and, and we, don't, we can't even hide that from you because you see everything, and so we just open books this morning before you, and you see all of that. But I just want to pray, Lord, for, for my brothers and my sisters, my friends here who are, who are carrying disappointment in their life, and I want to pray, Jesus, that you would give to them what you've promised to give to each of us, and that is abundant life. Lord, you've said in your word, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that they may have life. And we believe that, Jesus, even when we can't see it. And I want to just pray, Lord Jesus, all the ways in which the thief has come and, and stolen away so much of our lives and destroyed so many good things and robbed us of some richness in life. I want to pray, Jesus, that you would come and bring your fullness, your abundance, and your blessing into every heart, into every life, into every home, into every marriage, into every situation, Lord Jesus, where there is struggle, where there is disappointment. I want to pray that you would just release your blessing. We thank you, Jesus, that that is ultimately where the story ends. That's where the story of our life will end too, in your arms, with you, forever. So we just say this morning, come, Lord Jesus. Come into our lives. Come into our homes. Come into our situations. Bring renewal and bring healing and bring blessing. And remind us that even if things don't get better tomorrow, you are still with us. You will carry us and you'll be faithful to lead us home. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455 Thank you for listening.